Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And this episode is brought to you by Rogue Amoeba and Streak. You'll hear about those in a moment. Joining me, freshly back from the beach, both he and I, Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Great. And more tan, just slightly burned, but in a good way. It's fine. <laughs> Before we jump into things, I just want to remind you that we had a special episode. Georgia Dow, she's from Apple Talk with Renee Ritchie, and she has her own YouTube channel where she talks about popular culture and entertainment and psychoanalyzes them. She's a psychotherapist, also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion, but she had some awesome things to say about notification management and managing distractions from your technology and devices. So that was a special interview episode. It's the last episode in the feed. Had some great feedback already from it. So thank you for that. But if you haven't yet, check out that interview with Georgia Dow. I think you'll really like it. So you were at the beach. I was at the beach with family as well. Now, let me ask you this, because I did this. Did you on purpose test the water resistance rating of your iPhone 12? Well, I had the thing around water a lot. I never dunked it underwater. <laughs> I think you did. I did. I don't know what uh, possessed me to do it, but I was sitting by the pool with my kids and they were like, is your phone waterproof? Because I was like on my phone, like right over the water. And I was like, you know what it is? So I'm just going to do it. So I just, without even thinking, just like dipped it in the water and took it out, which my kids thought was hilarious. And then I was like, well, you know what? I've seen people record video underwater with their iPhone. So I'm going to try it. And so you have to start the recording above water because once it goes underwater, like the water messes with the capacitive touchscreen and you can't really control it anymore. But I started recording with video and I submerged my iPhone 12 Pro completely and recorded for like 30 seconds. I did it with a couple of my kids. And uh, yeah, it works. My phone is still fine. And the video looked pretty good. I tweeted it. I'll put a link to that uh, tweet. But yeah, it's cool. That technically works and everything, but um, Apple will not cover damage, even if you have Apple Care, if you do water stuff like this. Uh, right. Like, I, I was a little bit more brave. I went out into the ocean with my phone. Oh. Yeah, so waves crashing and everything. That's salt water. Yeah, I didn't dunk it underwater or anything, but I was out there taking pictures and stuff and wading around and oh, yeah. praying I didn't get knocked over by a giant rogue wave. But yeah, it was pretty fun. Now, do you, this, is, uh, this was not in the notes, but, you know, it's summertime. So let's talk about the beach and the iPhone. When you normally use your iPhone, do you go caseless or do you use a case? I do not use a case at all, ever. Like, I don't even own a case for the, the Pro Max. Right, right. The only thing I use is like MagSafe accessories, like the wallet. Right. And soon to be battery pack. Yes, which we're going to be talking about in just a moment. But I use cases. I use Apple's leather case most of the time. But my kids are making fun of me because when we go to the beach, I switch cases because leather case and sand and seawater do not get along. That will yeah. not, it will not go well. And so I actually use an Apple silicone case or uh, this. No, no, no. Sorry. I'm going to get emails. This is the actual silicone case because this is actually silicone. And I use that case at the beach and it works pretty good. But when it comes to water and sand, like a naked iPhone is probably like the best option because you can just clean it off and it's supposedly dust and water resistant. I've never had any issues across my fingers. My phone has been working great since four days after I did the uh, submerging in water. So we'll see. I did have someone tweet at me that they had a 10S, which is supposedly water resistant to like up to a meter for 30 minutes. And they tried to do dunk their 10S in water and it totally messed up. I guess that was a couple of years ago. So not recommended. Yeah. Fun facts on water resistance. Again, this is not waterproofing because waterproofing has a little bit more right. of a 
thing to it. Like it's it, the waterproofing means that it's a little bit more shock resistant. You're not going to damage the proofing by submerging it. Right. But resistance, you can ruin that layer of like, there's like adhesive uh, under the screen. The ports have gaskets. Like there's things going on inside the phone right. that prevents water from ingressing. But the thing is, <laughs> if you drop your phone, if you're prone to bumping, you know, anything like that, you're probably have already broken whatever water protection inside the phone there is so yeah all it takes is one submergence and you're done right. or if you do it over and over and over again especially at lower depths where you're going to have high pressure on the uh, ports you're also going to erode that water resistance away eventually this is really supposed to be for oops i didn't mean to do that not purpose submergence so definitely uh don't do it too much yeah because even the apple watch which apple advertises like for swimming and like you could do swimming workouts they don't even call that waterproofing, right? They still call it water resistance to a certain rating. Right, but the 50 like the 50 meter rating that's that's like the G-Shock, you know, dive watch thing, um like you're a lot safer. That app that is Apple saying you can absolutely swim and wear this in water whereas cuz like they explicitly say it, they show it in testing videos. If your Apple Watch breaks because of water damage, it's covered in the warranty versus iPhone, it is right. absolutely not an application of that phone, so they will not help you if there's that little red mark inside the phone. I, I forget if they still do that, but right. you get water damage. Yeah. I remember, I remember so many times being in an Apple store and someone goes up to the genius bar thinking they're going to be covered by whatever Apple care. And as soon as you see the, the genius bar agent, like pull out the magnifying glass or whatever it is to look at that little red tab, it's like, Oh, sorry, this has water damage. And then, you know, everybody just gets upset, but that was, that's unfortunate, but I'm actually on the Apple support page for water resistance. And I will link to this in the show notes because it's kind of interesting. Like one of the questions in on this page is like, is showering okay with the Apple Watch? And that's something I feel like even Tim Cook said at one point in like a keynote or something where he was like, I shower with my Apple Watch, no problem. But they actually say exposing Apple Watch to soapy water lessens the water resistance. And, you know, again, if it can degrade over time. Well, it becomes less and less resistant to water. It turns out that steam is also technically not safe either because right. it's it's water. Yeah, sure. But it's steam. And that, that the, the particulate can get in between uh, certain types of gaskets and stuff and still get into the danger areas of the watch where it's going to malfunction, especially like if you're at the beach and it's 100 million degrees outside. Right. Yes, all that's going to be <laughs> fine. But, you know, you walk into a steam room and you're covered in salt water it's you're just asking for trouble like there's just certain scenarios where this thing can still break but it's such a minute like thing that apple's not really going to mention it but yeah showering i would say you're technically probably fine right. with your watch your phone it's a little bit more risky but just do realize that there is a difference between water resistance and steam and yes. steam can steam's very tricky it can break through much easier than water can yeah and in, and in the support article it talks about sauna or steam room that you should avoid that if you want to protect the water resistance of your apple watch also high velocity water they give an example of water skiing so anything like high velocity. And then they also say like perfume, solvents, insect repellents, lotions, like all those things. Again, you're probably safe-ish for the most part, but a prolonged exposure or like high frequency exposure to those things will lessen the, the water resistance. I got a little funny when I took my iPhone out of the pool water after I submerged it and I saw just like the lightning port just underwater, like this water had gotten in the lightning port and it was just totally like covered over and it was just filled with water. And I was like, hmm. 
I guess that'll be okay. We'll see. Apple needs a water mode for the iPhone where you play a sound and it spits water out of all its ports. Like, that would be cool. But then I remembered, I always charge with MagSafe with everything, so who needs that lightning port anyway? No problem. (laughs) No problem there. Just go portless, yeah. Exactly. Well, this has been your summer edition of the Apple Insider Podcast, talking about water resistance and beach. One other thing, too. It was interesting as I was trying to film underwater. Again, not that I recommend this. Whatever disclaimer, disclaimer has has to be at the bottom of this episode about don't submerge your iPhone in water. But when I was going in and out of water, because my kids were like diving under and I would film them under, then they would come out of the water. However, the water messes with the capacitive touchscreen. It would actually stop and start the recording sometimes just by the water passing over the screen. So that was pretty interesting. Just I'll show you check out that video. It looks looks really good. Also, HDR video on the iPhone 12 Pro. Like we were outside, it was very bright. I'm here in Florida, so you know, blue sky plus the water contrast and all that. It was uh really good. The HDR video on the iPhone 12 Pro. If you didn't know, yeah, it's it's one of those things where the pace of technology we we get complacent to it, but. Producing that kind of video on a iPhone size camera in 2012 would have blown people's minds like that. We're talking $30,000 cameras and uh, heavy equipment and all kinds of stuff. And we're carrying these things around and they last for eight hours of recording. It's, it's insane. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. Well, Apple actually released a new product this past week. And so let's get to it. It is the MagSafe battery pack. This is something that was rumored months ago that Apple was working on a battery pack, but it is now officially launched. You can go and buy it. It is $99. If you ordered right away, some people might receive it this Monday because I was at the beach and traveling. I didn't see the announcement right away. As soon as I saw a tweet, I ordered it. Mine supposedly comes July 23rd through 30th. Again, a large window, so I don't know when exactly it's coming. But it is a MagSafe battery pack. It can slap on the back of any iPhone 12 and it will charge it. So it also has reverse wireless charging, which means, and there was, again, like patent rumors and stuff like this when the iPhone 12 came out, that it could reverse wireless charge AirPods, which is not the case yet. But with this battery pack, if you attach it to the back of your iPhone... If you plug in your iPhone to a lightning jack to charge it, it will actually charge your phone and the battery pack at once. So if, for instance, you're going to charge your phone and battery pack overnight, you want both things to be fully charged by the next morning. If you put the battery pack on the back of your iPhone, plug in your iPhone with a lightning cable, your phone and battery pack will charge, and it's your phone charging the battery pack, which is a reverse wireless charging scenario because it's going from phone to battery pack. So that's pretty cool. Now, this isn't the only wireless battery pack we've seen. There were a bunch of third parties that have come out since the 12 Pro. I will put links to our article that kind of lists several of them. I actually have the Anchor battery pack, which aligns with the magnets, but it is important to state that this is the first MagSafe battery pack, meaning it will actually charge up to like 15 watts of speed charging. All those other ones like from Anchor and Hyper that you can get, they max out at five watts because it's just plain old Qi charging. So you will get a faster charge with the new MagSafe battery pack, but it is only 1,460 milliamp hour capacity, which a lot of the other ones are 5,000 milliamp hours. Like the Anchor one I have is 5,000, but it is super chunky. Like it is big. It's not fun to use the phone while that thing is attached to the back. So this one is much thinner, much lower capacity milliamp hours though. And there was a little bit of confusion about how much it will actually charge the phones. Our initial reporting was saying maybe it'll charge an iPhone 12 mini to around 60%. Like if the 12 mini was at zero, you put this battery pack on, it gets to 60. 
What have we discovered since then, Wes, about how much will this battery pack actually charge your phone? Well, first of all, Apple didn't provide any specs. Uh, we don't know how big this thing is. It looks like it's the exact width of an iPhone mini. Right. Um, and then the height of maybe the MagSafe wallet if you want some dimensions. But as far as battery specs, we got nothing. Apple just said, here's a battery pack. It's cool. Uh, buy it now, please. $100. Right. If you just if you look on Apple's website, they, did know, they, they didn't try to conceal anything. There's uh, standard uh, legal text at the bottom of the back of the battery that where it attaches to the phone. And it has a few specs there. 1460 milliamp hours, 7.62 volts, 11.13 watt hours. Now, those numbers basically meaningless to anyone reading it, unless you're a familiar, but milliamp hours is how we generally talk about capacity of batteries that's like you know like you said 5,000 milliamp hours for anchor and hypers battery packs that they've made for iphone other things like that or portable packs go up to like 20,000 for example the iphone 12 pro max has a 3,687 milliamp hour battery so 1460 that sounds pretty minuscule that's not even half yeah you know so that's like saying the capacity of this magsafe battery pack is less than half of the battery capacity of a 12 pro max right yeah and the, like it can't even fully charge an iphone 12 mini but at first glance anyway right understanding a little bit about electrical theory i guess the iphone 12 series use 3.81 volt batteries that's a half of the magsafe battery capacity mm. So I won't get into all the details of why, but with a little math equation, we can figure out the watt hours of the iPhones. So you do that by multiplying the voltage by the milliamp hours, because those are, those are known variables. And this gives us kind of a truer understanding of the full capacity of the battery mm. because this uh, this accounts for voltage and amperage. So as stated, the MagSafe battery pack has 11.13 watt hours and the iPhone 12 Pro has 10.73 watt hours. So looking at those numbers, the MagSafe battery pack actually has a larger capacity uh, than the iPhone 12 Pro, but it is worth noting that we are dealing with wireless charging. So efficiencies will reduce the amount of, of charge this thing can provide to a phone, but it is at least a better capacity than what we originally thought. Right. And so I will put a link to Wes's article in the show notes. He's got some math. He's doing maths on this article and there's some charts. And it is, uh, if, if you want to see all the details, it is a great article to check out. The quick and dirty version of this is if you examine, so from Anchor, Anchor's 5,000 milliamp hour battery uses qi charging and that's a known efficiency of about 50 percent um right some some have said 47 percent uh maybe a little higher even 60 percent but it's generally speaking only half as efficient so you slap that thing on the back of your iphone yes it has 5,000 milliamp hours but 2,500 milliamp hours are being lost to heat and magnetic mm. losses right and only 2,500 maybe are making it to the battery in the iPhone to actually charge it. So yeah, while that anchor battery pack can fully charge your iPhone 12 Pro fully in one go, you're losing so much to heat uh, and whatnot because QI charging is just so inefficient. Yeah. Now we don't have the numbers yet because we need to do some testing and no one seems to have done the testing for MagSafe yet, but our understanding is, is that Mag MagSafe is actually much more efficient than standard QI charging due to some Apple, you know, trickery and uh, the, the magnetic attachment might help a little bit with uh, contacts because not again, not to get too much into details, but having the basically the magnetic coils that allow charging across devices like this wireless charging locked in place by magnets 
it allows them to be a little bit more efficient and we're estimating maybe 70% efficiency. Again, that's just an estimate. You could even call it a guess. Right. We're going to do the math uh, once we get the MagSafe battery pack, run these things as much as we can. If we assume 70% efficiency of the MagSafe battery pack, that means we can get about 90% charge of an iPhone 12 mini out of it. before. So uh, about an effective 2000 milliamp hour battery pack right. is what this is going to look like. I think it boils down like to real world use. If you struggled with your amount of use of your iPhone 12 getting through a day on a single battery charge, like you were having a charge midday or connected to a car charger at midday, maybe this battery pack will help you get all the way through the day without having to plug in. You know, I think that might be the real world translation, but I'll be getting one of these. And of course, we'll be testing a bunch on the website. I do think it's interesting if you go to Apple's website where you can buy it. Uh, first of all, right now it says July 27 is the earliest you can get it if you order now. They never show a profile shot of the battery pack and the iPhone together to give you an idea of how thick it is. <laughs> they only show it separately at an angle right. and then on an iPhone, like a straight on shot of the back of the phone this thing looks really thin like i mean it does from yeah. apple's product shots it look i mean i'm guessing maybe a little thicker than the leather magsafe wallet if, if i had to guess right yeah it, and it is definitely looks thinner than like the anchor and the hyper ones that like by half as much even. yeah at least half so so that's interesting also last thing we'll note it also has a lightning port on it so you don't have to only reverse wireless charge this thing you can charge the battery pack separately with a lightning cable yeah, very quickly, Andrew did a video over like why you might want this battery pack. Me and Andrew discussed a couple of these things, and I, I honestly think that this is the best bang for your buck. Yes, it's $100. The other offerings are in the $40 to $50 range, but for what you get out of it, you know, approximately 2,000 milliamp hour battery with efficiencies or whatever. But what's actually really cool here is, is what you just said, Stephen. The battery pack charges over lightning. So if you set this on your nightstand and plug it into lightning and just leave it there, the battery pack's always ready to go fully charged and if you want to charge your iphone like at a as a bedside nightstand thing just lay your iphone on it as if it was a regular magsafe charger right load up your phone and if you're leaving for the day or something you, you can just grab the whole thing unplug it from the lightning charger and now you have a battery pack fully charged on your phone or you can just lift your iphone off of it and leave the battery pack there it's just going to be a very versatile little uh thing and the reverse wireless charging aspect of this Again, something that the other batteries can't do is that while you're commuting or something and your iPhone's in your car, connect it to that MagSafe battery pack, plug your iPhone into CarPlay, you're now maintaining 100% battery on both your iPhone and the MagSafe battery pack while using accessories right. over one cable. So it's just this whole total package deal plus UI things and cool little battery widget stuff. Like that whole package there is, again, just Apple's kind of way of making this worth it. Yes. Very cool. Well, we'll put links to that video and the articles in show notes. You can check it out. MagSafe battery pack. We'll talk about it more once we have it in hand. Now, beta three of iOS 15 was released this past week, and there were some small updates, music widget updates, where the color of the widget will match what's playing, that background sounds, which is one of these accessibility features where you'll have actually built-in background sounds like rain in 
iPhone and iPad OS, and those are now options and shortcuts where you can manage background sounds through shortcuts, so that's pretty cool. You'll also be able to install software updates with less storage available. If you've ever tried to update a device that doesn't have a lot of free space, you know, it can be really annoying. You have to delete apps or whatever, but this in the latest beta says that if you have less than 500 megabytes of storage left on a device, that you'll be able to update through software update over the air without having to plug it into a Mac or something. So that's cool. But I think the most notable changes in beta three, as the entire Apple community has kind of been talking about Safari, since the first betas came out back at WWDC, Apple is still tweaking Safari across macOS, iPadOS, and on the iPhone. Now on the iPhone, it seems like it is the least changed. It's still kind of that floating address bar and you can now like long press and you get a little more actions that are not so many layers buried deep, like refresh. But on iPad and macOS, again, it is still in flux. It seems like Apple is just trying different things in each updated beta and then seeing the response of the Apple community. On macOS, it seems to have been improved where certain actions like the share button is now back in the toolbar and so not as many things are buried in the menus. But on iPad OS, they've redesigned the tabs where they basically just move all over. Like if you have a lot of tabs open on iPad OS in beta three of iPad OS 15, they move around a lot. And I saw like Federico Vitici and others saying like, this is now a step backwards for Safari on the iPad specifically. And so hopefully Apple will work that out. Are you running the latest beta on your iPad Pro? Um, no, this released at the end of the workday yesterday, and then I had to drive seven hours, so I haven't <laughs> installed anything on anything. Right. So Yeah, so I'm curious. I, I don't have it either, but from the videos and screenshots, it does look like on iPad specifically, it is not great. So we'll see. We'll see. Let us know, listeners, if you're on the public betas, which you can get the public betas for free now, or the developer betas, what you think of Safari on all of the platforms, because Mac, iPad, and the iPhone are all kind of different in different ways. And so, you know, I've heard the ATP guys and others all talking about like, this is not great for Safari. So anyway, hopefully they'll figure out how to do it and settle on it later this summer. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rogue Amoeba. You've heard me talk about Rogue Amoeba before, even before they were a sponsor. I use Audio Hijack to record every episode of the Apple Insider podcast, and I use their loopback application to send audio from music or Safari into a Skype or Zoom call. It's awesome, but Rogue Amoeba also has an entire suite of audio products for your Mac, and if you haven't checked it out yet, I am sure some of them will fit your needs. They have Sound Source, which is a sound control for your Mac, and honestly, it should be the sound control built right into macOS. It gives you powerful control over audio on your Mac. Per application audio controls, fast access to audio devices, and audio effects on any audio on your Mac. Super powerful. Fission is another application by Rogue Amoeba. It's a fast and easy audio editor. Maybe you're looking at getting into podcasting and you have a Mac. Well, Fission is a great tool to get started editing your audio. Airfoil, another utility by Rogue Amoeba, where you can stream audio from your Mac all over the house to different devices. Not only AirPlay outputs, but if you just have Bluetooth speakers and devices or maybe a Chromecast, you can send audio from your Mac to all those different devices at the same time using Airfoil. So if you need to do anything with audio on your Mac, whether it's recording, whether you do Skype and Zoom calls, whether you want to edit audio, Rogue Amoeba has an application for you. All of their software is available for download as a free trial, so you can try it all for free at macaudio.com. That's M-A-C-A-U-D-I-O.com. And here's the kicker. Because you listen to the Apple Insider Podcast, you can save 21% off 
everything they make through the end of July, through the end of this month. Use the coupon code INSIDER21, all one word, INSIDER21, and you can save on Loopback, Audio Hijack, Sound Source, Fission, Airfoil, and more. Any application you want to get from Rogue Amoeba, get 21% off using the coupon code INSIDER21. Again, go to macaudio.com, use the promo code INSIDER21, and save 21% on anything from Rogue Amoeba. I absolutely love their software. I use it all the time, and you should too. Our thanks to Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring this episode. So real quick, we've had iPad mini and iMac rumors the past several months. I did want to note that Mark Gurman in his weekly Power On newsletter, this is writing for Bloomberg, but he now has his own newsletter he sends out every week. He claims that the refreshed iPad mini, which will resemble the design of the iPad Air, should be a go. That's a quote from his newsletter, should be a go for launch this fall. Again, the biggest redesign in the nine-year history of the iPad mini. Of course, the iPad mini has not changed very much the last nine years, so this would be totally new. Again, reminiscent of the iPad Air design with the Touch ID button on the side, no home button, and also claims that the larger iMac, which will sport the M1X, most likely the iMac to replace the 27-inch current Intel version, will also be released this fall. Again, that's from Mark Gurman. He's got a pretty good track record, so... We'll have to wait to the fall until see. But if you're in the market for an iPad mini or a larger iMac, try to hold out. It looks like this fall that stuff will be coming. Yeah, I'm definitely going to jump all over that uh, iPad mini. That sounds cool. Now, wait a minute, Wes. You're going to have an iPad Pro, an iPad Air, and an iPad mini? I I won't have all three. I mean, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So when I I do these kinds of things, I'll switch one out. So I'm always going to have the Pro for work and stuff. Sure, sure. But the Air I got after it came out just because... It was the new form factor, and I want to try Touch ID and all of that. But I prefer the mini size, I think. So I'll, I'll at least get this to test. Yeah, oh yeah. And see if I want to keep it around. But as a secondary screen, like right here on my desk to my left, I always keep my iPad Air here. This is usually playing CNBC throughout the day while I'm working. Uh, has Slack open, so my green dot stays on. And right. right now I'm using it for Skype for podcasts. So it serves a purpose as like a secondary display. Yeah, absolutely. But the iPad Mini would. St- still be just fine for that and give me that smaller iPad. I can, you know, pretty much almost pocketable iPad that I can carry around the house and use as a note-taking reading kind of tablet. Um, yeah. The iPad Air is great for that. And I love this form factor so far. Like this is probably the best iPad as a tablet uh, size. I've noticed 11 inch, whereas like the 12.9 inch is the best iPad is a laptop. The mini just, I don't know. It's always had a, a nice special niche, like little place of it's small enough that you can carry it anywhere. It pretty much fits in a breast pocket or, or like of a jacket or a your back pocket of jeans or something. Works with Apple Pencil. And yeah, it's big enough that it's bigger than your iPhone. It has that four by three display or whatever that they're going to do for this redesign. Yeah, And it just displays content big and large and uh it's it's just nice to use i will say i've now had a 12.9 inch ipad pro for what two almost two months now came the end of may definitely gotten used to the 12.9 inch size because i came from an 11 inch and i really like it i think the 12.9 inch ipad it feels more productive when i'm doing work and when i'm editing a podcast like i really like the new screen size we have been using it to watch stuff at night because we don't have a TV in the bedroom anymore, just we're moving and stuff. And so using the iPad Pro 12.9 inch for all that, I love the larger screen size. So I'm all about that now. But I do miss whenever I wanted to read something, holding the 12.9 inch iPad Pro to read something, whether it's an article or an ebook, a little cumbersome. Let's be honest, like it's large. 
So I was actually thinking about, do I want to get a Kindle again? Because I used to have a Kindle Paperwhite and I really liked it, but that's been a long time ago. And so I started shopping and I said, all right, how much does a Kindle go for now? Like what's the Kindle lineup? First of all, very confusing. If you've tried to shop for a Kindle (laughs) recently, there's like six different models with or without ads, different storages, different cellular connectivity, the low-end Kindle, there's the Kindle Paperwhite still, and then they have the Kindle Oasis, and they all have different features. The Paperwhite is water-resistant like the Oasis, but the Oasis has physical buttons. So anyway, as I was looking at all this, I was like, I don't don't even know if I want to get into this world. Like, this is confusing. And I've actually been using Apple Books to purchase eBooks and audiobooks. One, because I have all the Apple devices and it's just easy to have everything there. And if I want to copy a quote from a book, I can pull it up on my Mac or my iPad, copy and paste it. No problem. I'm like, well, I want to stay in the Apple ecosystem. Plus my purchases are shared across family. And I think with Kindle, you can do that too, if you have an Amazon family thing, but for like audiobooks and stuff, it's just been easier to buy an audiobook in Apple books and it gets shared through the family, through the shared family purchases. So looking at the Kindle, the Oasis, which is their top of the line Kindle, 270 bucks. Like it is not cheap. Right. It's 270 without ads. You know, if you want to get, if you're okay seeing ads every time you turn on the screen, which I prefer not to, you can save like 20 or 30 bucks. But with this iPad mini, if it comes in like sub $400 range, it'll be exactly 400. You think it'll be exactly $400? <laughs> so, so when I meant sub 400, I meant 399. If it comes in at 399. There you go. You know, that's 100 more than this Kindle Oasis, but my goodness, it would be an iPad that one of my kids can use if, you know, if I want to let, let them use it or whatever or we're traveling, it'd be a great entertainment device and handability or like holdability, whatever you want to call it, for reading ebooks. The iPad mini does seem like an attractive option. Yeah, I mean Paper displays are cool. I love like the the idea behind like e ink. That's what it's called. The uh, that Kindle uses. Yeah, and those you know there's there's those more fancy ones like the waterproof Kindle and stuff that you can you take in the pool and go read or whatever. There's a lot of cool stuff, but I just don't want to give any more money to Amazon, especially <laughs> books. I don't want to have to sync books. I don't you know. Yeah, and I, I may come off as a purist. Maybe I'm like a. a purist in denial but like i like having the apple stuff and the apple books yes the the selection's a little odd sometimes they maybe don't have all the best releasing schedules as maybe some of these other publishers whereas like amazon books seems to be treated more as a books a million dedicated type distributor where they get everything the exact minute it's available and apple books can sometimes be on a delay which for is weird for whatever reason probably part of that crazy lawsuit a few years ago right i just i don't know apple books just makes more sense to me and like while I like the idea of having paper whites and all that stuff or uh, ink displays and all that. I also want to use these things as like comic readers and stuff. Right. And, yeah. you know, you can't do that if you're looking at a e-ink display. I mean, I, can they draw comics on those? It would be interesting. It's maybe a Peanuts cartoon, but uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's just interesting seeing like i've seen this in the tech community the apple community lately of people saying like oh i'm i got, went and got this kindle yada yada and i set up shortcuts so that when i uh share a website to the shortcut it puts it in my read reading list for kindle and it's on my paper white when i go pick it up and i'm like i'll n- never be on that level <laughs> i just you know and if yeah. i'm 
I, I'm I'm not one of those people like I, I I like the focus stuff. I like the productivity stuff, you know, of uh, a lot of this stuff. But I don't take it to the level of like I need a dedicated device or else I might accidentally open Twitter and lose four hours. Like I'm not one of those people. Yeah. So h- having an iPad that can do it all just makes more sense to me than having you know, going back to 2001 where you needed a camera, an iPod, a phone, and sure. you, know, you needed cargo pants to leave the house in order to carry everything <laughs> that you wanted. So, yeah, I was about those cargo pants, man. I wore those cargo <laughs> pants for sure. Now I will say the Kindle, I did find this device, which I didn't know existed, but they have a Kindle for kids. And so this is a Kindle e-reader. It's designed for kids. It's got parental controls. And like right now it's on sale for like $70. And like that was tempting, but again, then you really have to split your ecosystem like you're talking about. Like, yeah, it calls purists, whatever, but I like to simplify the platforms I need to manage. You know, I don't want to manage an Audible subscription and Apple Books over here. And that's the other thing too, is I don't want to pay a subscription for eBooks and audiobooks. Like I just want to buy an audiobook and just own it and that be it. And as I was doing the math to do an audible subscription, you know, I think it's like 15 or $20 a month and you get one credit a month, which is one book. And if you look at Apple's audiobooks, which are in the books app, they're basically the same price. Like you could get it for like $12, $15. Some are more expensive, but paying for a month of audible gets you one book, but it, then you're also charged every month unless you remember to cancel it. Apple, you can just buy a book for pretty much the same price and be done. Like you own the book. There's no subscription to manage. So for me, that was a more tempting option for audiobooks. So we've been doing that. It syncs again. Like if my wife buys an audiobook or if I buy one, we can all listen to it. Like it saves all our places separately. You know, it's not like it tries to sync that across people. So it works well. And then also, if you have an Apple Watch, you can actually sync audiobooks to your Apple Watch and you can listen if you go for a walk or a run. Right. And again, not something you could do with a Kindle or the Amazon Audible stuff. So I don't know. That's just what we've been doing. There are benefits to an ecosystem, but I also wanted to bring up like not, Amazon's not going anywhere anytime soon or any of its properties, I don't believe. Like, But you know, you've seen this happen in other places before. I remember before I went to Apple years and years ago. Google ecosystem, Sony, whatever, what have you, you might invest money into a specific digital ecosystem and then it just disappear right. within a couple of years. Like uh, I remember Sony doing that 4K Ultra HD li- digital library platform where they sold premium $40 4K movies. Thank God I never invested in that, but it existed. Right. And within a year, I think it just said, well, sorry guys, uh, good luck. Make sure you download your stuff to a hard drive and we're going out of business <laughs> and never coming back. Right. Like, and I, I think think this has happened to like book platforms publishing stuff like marvel's been through like four different iterations of its comic book distribution stuff and it's like yeah all these disparate locations to buy things is good giving money to two other publications you know maybe they'll make more money on these platforms or, or something like that that's all good and well but what happens when they change hands or go under or change platforms change the app any of those things can lead to disaster because we're talking about digital libraries they're uh not physically real so unless the format supported on the new service or unless you can download it and take it elsewhere essentially buying a ticket to let you access the thing until it goes away forever and so far on apple's platforms everything that they've introduced as a digital service 
hasn't gone away. I mean, that could change. Apple Books could dry up in 2025. We don't know. But I feel safer in a place where I know that like it's under a ecosystem umbrella. These licensing terms seem to be locked in place and Apple's UI and software is built around these services. So it just feels a little more locked in yeah. than say, you know, Kindle or Google Books or something. And they might change their mind about how the platform works. And suddenly, oh, well, sorry, you're out of luck. Right. Uh, you know, good luck using this transfer service that may or may not make <laughs> everything work the same way. <laughs> So anyway, that's a segment on e-readers, but going back to the iPad mini, if you're in the market, wait for this fall, might be coming out. And I also wanted to mention this, there's an Apple supplier called Rockley Photonics, and they have actually announced that they have a non-invasive glucose monitor in a wrist-style device. Now, again, this is not an Apple product or anything like that, but this is a supplier that Apple uses called Rockley Photonics, and they have something called a clinic on the wrist. And they said that by using a large number of discrete laser outputs, they can have a non-invasive measurement of glucose through the skin. And so this, again, points to that idea and rumor that one day the Apple Watch will get glucose monitoring. And the fact that, again, this is not like been widely tested and it's not publicly available. But the fact that this company, Rockley Photonics, has been able to seemingly get some kind of glucose measurements from lasers on this thing on the wrist, you know, rather than having to, you know, poke a needle and all that, this is a good sign that one day glucose monitoring might come to the Apple Watch. So that's very cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome for the people who need it. Like maybe I'm feeling nostalgic today, but again, just thinking about like the march of technology in this sector, it wasn't that long ago, say, you know, 2010, a decade ago, where we were saying, you know, we're going to diabetics are going to be pricking their fingers forever. There's just literally no way to that, to get into the body uh, to measure your glucose levels that way. And, you know, as early as 2015, we were hearing, well, maybe the Apple Watch might find a way to do it using on-device sensors or maybe an implant chip and Bluetooth, something like that. And now only, you know, just a couple years later, it's like, yeah, we might actually just be able to essentially take a photo of your arm and see what your uh, levels are and crazy that's that's awesome yeah, yeah that's that and you know i it, it feels now more real than ever that apple could be releasing a straight up medical device because i mean so far the apple watch still isn't a medical device but if it does something like this i feel like they'll have to go through the fda what, not fda that's food and drug is that is that right i think it's the fda that still does it though yeah because they get they, they went to the american heart association for the ecg certification so i would think for the glucose monitoring, it would be FDA. Yeah, so they'll, they'll be going through some government facility, which means we'll probably know about it six months before it's released. And That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things where like this regulatory type medical stuff is very real and could be happening soon. Now, I'm, I'm still of the mind that maybe Apple Watch Series 7 or, or future iterations will probably lean more into smart band functionality so Apple can bury this technology into a band first and then mm -hmm. the watch later to kind of step it, you know, in a little bit. Right. Right. Because, again, like they can hide stuff like that better than they can an Apple Watch with sure. this kind of technology in it. But it's cool that it's it's sooner rather than later at this point. This episode is brought to you by Streak. As a small business owner, or maybe you're founding a new business, you know what it's like to run an entire business from the email inbox. Between sales, recruiting, fundraising emails, things can get very messy very quickly. Streak is a CRM designed to help you stay on top of each part of your process 
and your inbox without ever leaving Gmail. Here's the magic of it. Streak gives you tools for email tracking, mail merges, snippets to save time, and scale up your email efficiency. In just a few minutes, you can set up pipelines right inside your inbox to start tracking your contacts and emails through each process. Streak helps you collaborate by sharing emails and pipelines with your team members, whether you work in an office, out in the field, or on a remote team. Pipelines are completely customizable so you can track processes and details specific to your business. Access your pipelines on desktop or the mobile app to add and share information in meetings, at job sites, or however you work on the go. Listener, I've used multiple CRM systems and it can be a pain to manage that system and deal with your email. That's what makes Streak so valuable. You can do that CRM work, following up on leads, keeping track of people, all right inside Gmail. It's a seamless experience. I highly recommend you try it out. You can sign up for Streak today at streak.com slash Apple Insider and get 20% off your first year of their pro plan. That's their most popular option. That's streak.com, S-T-R-E-A-K dot com slash Apple Insider for 20% off their pro plan. Streak.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Streak for sponsoring this episode. So there was some kerfuffle online about the weather app in iOS and how it might avoid showing the temperature as 69 degrees because, haha, internet humor or whatever. And so there were many thoughts about this. I just thought it was funny. One, I looked in my weather app across many locations and I could not find the number 69 displayed anywhere. And I thought that was interesting. But There are several hypotheses about this. One is that certain updates of iOS, you know, block it and some don't. So it doesn't seem to be consistent across iOS versions. But this from Joao Pavao, he had this tweet and he was saying the conversion from Celsius to Fahrenheit, which, you know, if you're listening here in America, let's let's be honest, most of the world uses Celsius, that the conversion from Celsius to Fahrenheit, there are actually many numbers missing from the degrees Fahrenheit range. And so he has this chart here in our article. And again, I'll put the article in show notes, but it's missing 67, 69, 71, 74. And so I went on a hunt looking for those numbers in the weather app as well. Again, I'm on iOS 14.6, the latest public release, not any betas. And I could not see any of those numbers either. I cannot find 74, 71, or 69 across multiple locations of the US. So I do not think this is some conspiracy. I feel like the Celsius theory actually might be the closest to accurate, but I don't know, Wes, you had the article. What'd you think about this? Well, I had to write it so you could hear me (laughs) sigh around the world. Uh, Oh, yes. It's one of those things where you have to be incredibly focused on the concept in order order to even discover this. (laughs) Right. And I think I think The Verge broke this story, which is just uh, The Verge. It's very plausible, and it seems that Apple's weather app all the way through time has always used Celsius conversions just to simplify things, and we're just not figuring this out. But in iOS 15, we're shifting to dark sky heavily as the API, and it seems that it uses direct Fahrenheit whatever data uh, because I wanted to make sure to include in the screenshot for the story uh, weather that had the number 69 in it. And of course our 
social bar is blocking it, <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't realize that until just now. But the the temperature is available. Like you can find it in iOS 15's betas. Uh, it, the number 69 is everywhere, and uh, okay. these other numbers are as well. So it, it does appear to be a conversion issue, um, and others have noted that, yes, like iOS 15's betas are showing these things. It's just such a silly thing to have found, like very, very 2020, 2021 type culture uh, <laughs> to, to have found this, but, you know. Yeah, and again, what I am more in our, up in arms about still is the lack of iPad weather app. Like, what in the world? Please, Apple. <laughs> bring the weather in it's funny that people keep screaming for this because i i'm 90 percent sure that the only people aware of this are us internet nerds and even if apple released one we would still probably use carrot weather or something else be like thanks apple for the app we're just going to put this in the bin and keep using what we like but you know good on you for including it yeah now i will be honest so i was the dark sky user forever and then once Apple bought Dark Sky, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to start using the stock weather app just to see. And so I use the stock weather widget on my iPhone, and I will just tap that to look at the forecast. I will go to Dark Sky just to look at the radar of rain. Again, living in Florida, we get a lot of rain, and you got to know which way it's going, which way it's coming and all that. But in iOS 15, radar maps are coming to the stock weather app. And so while I do think all those other weather apps are great. There was a new one recently, not Weatherline, but I forget what it was called, but there was a new weather app that just came out. Plus you got Carrot Weather and all those. So yes, they're, they're great apps out there, but I actually like the the stock one. And I've found that the precipitation forecasts, which again, in Florida, very important. I've found that just looking at the widget, like the long style four icon uh, taking up size widget, the precipitation forecasts have been pretty good. Again, coming from the dark sky data. So I don't know. I'm down for the stock one. Well, here, here's my proposal for Apple. You know, you you have a web, you ha- if you have a weather app on your phone at all, let's go nuts with it. Like, let's yeah, yeah. short shortcut support, automation support. If it looks like yes. it's going to rain, change the lights. Um, you know, we were talking last time I was on the show about how contacts and calendars and photos all sync together in this data pool. Let's throw weather in there. Why not get a memory about rainy days? Like, just I don't know, <laughs> like. Apple could just go all out here, but yeah, you know, they could amplify this a lot, but for whatever reason, this app and like contacts or whatever, they just seem to be happy with the very stock minimal amounts of information type stuff. And I don't know, that seems odd to me. Like I, it, these, these kinds of things that were built, you know, when the iPhone came out and they've just updated the UI skin to continue to work, but otherwise haven't touched it. And it, I, right. you know, it feels like Apple just needs to throw it out or, revamp the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So Apple TV Plus was nominated for 35 Emmys this year. 20 of those Emmy nominations were for Ted Lasso. That's for you, William Gallagher, as you're listening. Just so you know, 20 Emmy nominations for Ted Lasso. I think you should still watch it. This doubled their first year total nominations. So that's all well and good. Very cool. But the way that Apple told everyone about these Emmy nominations, not only in like press releases and stuff, but everybody got a rogue Apple TV notification about their Emmy nominations. And so we had an article about this. Now, again, like I get a ton of notifications every day. Like I'm not super up in arms about getting a notification, but in the antitrust argument about whether or not Apple or Google are taking advantage of owning the platform, these kinds of notifications and things you get from Apple Arcade that are not related to anything that you have or have asked for is 
spurious. Like it's not, it doesn't look great for Apple. And so when I got this notification, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Let me, before I complain about it, let me see what options are there for Apple TV notification settings on the phone. And I went in there because I do have notifications for when there's new episodes of something. I like to know there's a new episode for Ted Lasso or for All Mankind, or it even tells you new episodes across your streaming services if they integrate with Apple TV, like Loki for Disney+. And so I went into the settings, notifications, TV notifications, and it's the weirdest thing. You get three options for customizing your Apple TV notifications. The three options are Up Next, which tells you about new episodes of shows that you're watching, which those are the ones I want. There's a new features section, so you can choose to get notifications for new features, I guess, in Apple TV, which seems strange, but anyway. And then featured sports, you can get sports notifications. Now I had all these turned on, but I've now turned off the new features and featured sports. I'll have to, I guess, wait until the next rogue Apple TV Plus notification when everybody complains about it to see if I got it also. Yeah, are the Emmys a sport <laughs> right. or a feature? This is what I'm saying. Like, because I, I tweeted this question and I was like, what, where would this land? 34 Emmy nominations. What is that a, a that's not a featured sport. And a new feature, like what are new features of Apple TV Plus the app? the service, like new shows of it. Like, so anyway, I turned those off. I left my up next on. And so we'll see, you know, I, again, these are the kinds of things where Apple Arcade is the same thing. Every once in a while, I'll get an Apple Arcade notification about there's a new update to Sneaky Sasquatch or there's a new game available. Some of those I appreciate, some of those I don't, but you can't really granularly control like what games you're going to get notified about. So I get it. It's a complicated problem, but yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting. What'd you think about this? Well, I'm never one to get overly upset at a notification. I've seen people go up in arms at Apple willing to sue over an Apple music trial <laughs> notification. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where I think this is a very silly problem with a very simple solution that doesn't even have to hurt Apple's abilities to do this stuff here. Put it in settings. Say, do you want Apple to ever give you a notification about anything apple related yes or no like you know we'll call it apple pr apple whatever and toggle and give us a toggle for it the people who know already know this stuff so the the notifications are useless anyway right. and the people who know are going to be the ones who turn it off the people who don't know don't care or just completely you know non just don't don't care will never seek it out never turn it off and still get the notifications and maybe they'll get notified of something they didn't know about right. but um having that option there we'll just get everyone to hush about it uh it's just one of those tiring things like uh, you see the notification notification come in and you're like oh well here come the news stories you know right. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's fine like i i understand complaining about these things but again like i've brought it up before at least we're complaining about this and not having seven different sms messengers it pre-installed oh, yeah. on a phone you know with uh, ad rolls in the text bar before you can type text you know it's <laughs> just people do the slippery slope argument i don't know where a emmy nomination notification is going to get us uh, forcefully ap apple employees are going to come in tie you down to a chair and make you watch an episode of ted lasso <laughs> I, you know i don't think we're going to get to that dystopia anytime soon no but i will do that to william unless he watches ted lasso which by the way season two of ted lasso comes out july 23rd that's Next Friday, if you listen to this as the podcast comes out, but go watch Ted Lasso. That's all. Or Eddie Q is going to be knocking on your door. <laughs> That's right. Also, Twitter killed Fleets, and they had a hilarious tweet. They said, uh, we're sorry or you're welcome, but Fleets will be dead uh, August 
third, I believe. So that's that. I think they said it was just like a test feature. I yeah. don't know. I don't, I don't think they were ever that committed to it, but they weren't obviously not committed to it either. So right. yeah, it was just very odd. Listen, I give Twitter credit for like trying stuff randomly and then killing it when it doesn't work. Unlike Facebook, who will just co-opt a feature from like Snapchat and just push it until it works. Which again, if you have a billion users, I guess you can do that with stuff. But Twitter's, I don't know. I like how they're a little more, uh, yeah, we'll try it. If it doesn't work, we won't do it. So I'll give them credit for that. I also wanted to mention uh, AT&T. If you're on AT&T here in the US and you're on their unlimited elite data plan, that they've actually taken away throttling. They will not throttle your data speeds over a certain amount. I think it used to be like 25 gigabytes of usage in a month and then they would start throttling you. And uh, this was apropos because as I was away for the weekend, uh, we were actually gone for about four days and the Wi-Fi at the place we were staying was horrendous. And you also couldn't connect. I actually had a Chromecast for those of you who think I'm just in Apple's uh, pocket. I actually use other devices too. I have a Chromecast, new one. And uh, we were using that to stream stuff, but I couldn't connect to the Wi-Fi because it was one of those like you have to log in and put in a code on a website and it just wouldn't work. So I actually hotspotted from my iPhone 12 Pro to the Chromecast and streamed movies. And I used this billing period, 40 gigabytes of data on my cellular plan. So there you go. And now it will no longer be throttled. So I was happy to hear about that. I am in Apple's pocket and I'm, I'm contractually re- uh, required to use only Apple products at right, all times. Right. No, let me see if I don't, do you have to reset that tracking thing? Don't you? Yeah. Well, I looked at my AT&T account to look at the usage for the billing period. Uh, Wes was also being sarcastic in case there's any lawyers listening. Uh, he is not in Apple's pocket. Just so, you know. I, no, I'm not. I, obviously, I, I, my house is wood paneling from 1967. I'm, I'm, it's fine. Right, right. Uh, if I turned on my camera and I was in a white room, we'd have a different discussion. That's right. Johnny, I'd be sitting in the corner. As Wes looks up his cellular data for uh, this billing period, I also wanted to mention that AT&T is expanding its 5G plus, the millimeter wave, like really fast technology for cellular data. And supposedly Tampa International Airport which is, again, probably most of you listeners that you're not near that or whatever. But because I'm in Central Florida, that's actually the nearest airport to me. They said they actually have 5G plus in several of the concourses and near gates in uh, the Tampa International Airport. And AT&T is going to be expanding their millimeter wave 5G to multiple airports across the U.S. So I thought that was interesting. If you're following that 5G train and wanted to test those super fast speeds, if you go through Tampa International Airport, you should be able to uh, see those now. Well, I can confirm that 5G is not in Myrtle Beach, nor is 5G plus, <laughs> nor is it anywhere near me in Tennessee. So I, I just it might as well not exist. Yeah. Um. According to so this current period thing that resets like every month or something, it it says on here, eighty point one gigabytes. Well, I mean, I cause maybe you were li- you were gone for a while. Maybe I was also working. While I was there, well, cause see, I didn't take time off and I have the ability to just work from iPad anywhere. Right. So that right. We yeah. have that privilege. Uh, so I said, you know, what? I'm not taking off. I'm just gonna work from the hotel room. And I, I the hotel Wi-Fi was so bad that I, I don't think I could even open a website. So <laughs> I just worked from the LTE on my iPad and, uh, okay. Maybe 13.2 gigs on the iPad. So they're two okay. different numbers. So I have no idea yeah, what no this, idea. where this number comes from. A lot of gigs though. I do want to say uh, before we went on our little family trip, my son dropped his Apple watch SE and completely shattered the screen. And we are in the middle of the repair process 
there's actually a replacement coming tomorrow as we record. So on the next episode, I will share the saga of what happens when you bust an Apple Watch screen and how is the Apple Care Plus experience? Because I have some thoughts about that experience and I will I'll complete the process this weekend with the new one, send the old one back, and then I will recount the whole story on the next episode. So if you're curious, that'll be coming next week. And I just want to sneak in one listener question. This was Derek on Twitter. He asked, what do we use for personal or professional backup solutions? He was thinking about getting a network attached storage backup system. And I will be honest, this is an area that I do not have a great like I don't have a good system. I basically don't have a NAS or multiple drive server anywhere. I trust the cloud for better or for worse. I trust iCloud for backing up all that stuff. I do have a Dropbox account and I have a bunch of stuff in there. I've uploaded my iPhone camera roll to Dropbox. So it's in another cloud location in case something ever happened to iCloud drive, but I don't have a a local backup storage solution. I'm trusting the cloud for now. Although I do want to get a Synology one day, but Wes, do you have any kind of backup solution? Um, I have a 10 terabyte spinning disk hard drive. That sounds like pots and pans clattering together connected to my Mac mini (laughs) every now and then, if I remember, um, while I'm walking by it, I might drag my photo library into that just to have a offsite backup solution. But, um, I don't really have what you would call like files that I need to back up, but, and what I do have, that's like, you know, historical stuff, like uh, my Navy documents and stuff for, you know, medical, whatever. I have all of that, like an iCloud drive and that seems pretty safe again like if i lose it i'm not going to cry nothing in there is going to like you know get me killed or anything so maybe i think i have that all also backed up in little samsung one terabyte external ssd right that i keep connected to my ipad dock like i i drag files into that every now and then again none of this is automated i just think oh that would be a good idea to keep you know somewhere else physical right and uh, drag it in there or the desktop drive i have out there otherwise like the only like critical data I have that I'm really worried about is my photos and videos. And yeah, like you said, iCloud, I keep every like I buy larger storage devices. So I download and save everything to my iPhone and iPad Pro, and then I have it in the cloud. So not only are they physically downloaded to multiple devices and my Mac and on that external hard drive out there, it's in Apple's iCloud. Yes, it's all one service, but they're physically downloaded in multiple locations. So I feel pretty safe with that. Yeah. Same. That's what I do. Yeah. How many photos you got in your collection, by the way? Um, oh. On your, if you look in your iCloud photo library yep, right yep, now. Yep, yep, yep. I look at my iCloud photo library right now at the bottom, 35,408 items. See, I don't have children, so I feel like I feel <laughs> yeah. like it exponentially goes up. Like, I have a lot of photos of my cat, but, like, <laughs> right. I have 7,057 photos, and that's been in, like i've increasingly like exponentially added more photos every year like 1000 2015 you know 1200 the next year right i've i've done more and more every year but my photo library collection actually goes back only to about 2009 i don't have anything in my library before that mm. because i i was a child and didn't own technology to take photos and you know before that you know it might as well have been film anyway uh, or a Nintendo DS camera, which uh, all that's been lost <laughs> to history. But yeah, 7,000 photos. I always hear these numbers like the ATP guys are like, yeah, I have 138 million photos. I'm just like, <laughs> what What are you? Do you ever look at these pictures? Yeah, I will say, yes, kids change it dramatically. 
It is the Apple Memories feature. I've actually been taking the time to actually look at those when they pop up. And they actually are nice to look at because like, oh, these pictures that I did not remember I had, Apple showing them to me. But also, I worked at a job for four years where taking photos of like destinations for travel was part of the job. Got it. And I did put those photos into the photo library. So that's part of that collection. Well, yeah. quick, quick question on, I guess, photo management while we're here. Do you curate your photo library as you go? Like, you know, you're on vacation, you take a hundred photos that day, you look back and say, oh, all these are repeats or duds, uh, delete them and then move on. A and B, do you, are you one of these people that save a million images from the internet or do you, or are you a sane person and put them in iCloud drive? So you're not filling your photo library with memes instead of your children. <sighs> Wes, I will be honest. I am not a go back and delete things. I don't need just because typically that would take so much time. And I'm like, I just, I'm not going to do it. So I do have a bunch of, you know, photos I don't really care to have. But since coming back to do this podcast over a year ago, I have so many, like every week, I'll have like 25 images that I save from the Apple Insider website to make it to chapter art or to make like the header images for the articles. And every week I have like 20 more random photos of Steve Jobs or an iPhone screenshot. Like it's terrible. I do need to start doing what you said. Yes. Okay. That might explain. Okay. So I am a little bit in, I might be on the slightly crazy side of things. I don't know. I, I, any of any other photo library I've seen of a person is 80% memes, 10% selfies and 10% pictures they accidentally took in their pocket. And then they might have (laughs) 1% intentional. Oh, this is a beautiful picture on a post to Instagram. And that's it. Me. Like I've always had kind of the photography mindset of, I want to take as many pictures as I can anywhere I can. And then I do, I guess I don't have kids. So I have the time for it. I do go back and especially like where we were on vacation or Myrtle beach every day I would go back spend half an hour just deleting repeat images curating it a little bit maybe uh, touching up a few photos and then at the end of every work day I delete all the screenshots and photos I built I build for the website because I'm never going to reuse them again and if any if anything's important enough or nice enough that I've put work into to keep for work I put it into iCloud Drive again because I'm a sane person and don't keep webshot images in my photo library <sighs> for my family <laughs> you you are convicting me for sure. That is you're living the dream, Wes, and I need to start doing that. Maybe with this week's episode, I will start trying to use iCloud Drive for that stuff rather than it's camera roll. It's one day, or you know, depending on the size of your library, it's a couple of days of actual effort of sorting through, finding all the junk, you know, yeah. select all screenshots, drag it out of your library. Use the screenshot folder, select screenshots, drag it out of your library, get rid of all of those, put them in iCloud Drive, and then curate it a little bit. And once you've done that once, get through the labor, yes. then, you know, do a little bit each day. Every time you're taking photos, you're going to have a much better library experience, I think. <sighs> well, you've given me a... I know, I gave you homework. You've given me a project now. I will attempt, maybe... <laughs> to try and do that in the near future. I really do want to, because I really want my photo library clean. So I'll try to do it one day, Wes. I'll do it for you. Well, listeners, tell me, what do you use for your backup solution? Or do you actually curate your photo library like Wes was talking about? Or are you like me, where you have a ton of random web images and memes in your camera roll and you're not proud of it? Tweet at myself. I'm at Stephen Robles on Twitter. Wes is at Hillitech. You'll find those links in the show notes, as well as links for everything we talked about in today's episode. We'd love to hear from you. 
Want to thank those of you who have given the show a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts recently. That really helps out the show. And if you haven't yet, please take a moment to do that. Five stars with a little uh, review there. If you're not sure what to write, tell me. What's your backup solution? What do you do with your photos? Or what phone are you currently using? Whatever you want to put in that review section, that's totally fine. Also, you can get an ad-free version of the show in early access if you support the Apple Insider podcast on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash appleinsider, or there's many of you who started doing it right here in Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. You can do a little free trial, listen to what an ad-free episode sounds like, and then you subscribe just for $5 a month, you can get an ad-free version. Also, let me know there's been some of you reaching out on Twitter telling me some other benefits that if we offered these, you would sign up for the $5 a month subscription. Tweet at me at Stephen Robles. Let me know what would you like to get from a, a subscription to the Apple Insider podcast. I know Discord and having our own like Discord channel, access to that is a thing that people would like to have. Or if you'd like bonus episodes, what actual content would you like to hear in a bonus episode that would make you want to subscribe? Let me know. And don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider. That's our show, me and Andrew O'Hara talk about smart home and HomeKit devices. That comes out every Monday in Apple Insider Daily. Subscribe there. You can get the top Apple news headlines in just a few minutes every weekday. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.